this recording, we want to look at Oswald's movements from his return to Dallas from Mexico in the first week of October 1962 until the assassination. Now, some people criticized the Warren Commission for focusing on Oswald because they thought that the Warren Commission was prejudging Oswald. But given all the enormous evidence that is against Oswald as the shooter in the JFK assassination, it would be a dereliction of duty if someone did not look at Oswald and his movements. And also when you see the daily activities of someone like Lee Harvey Oswald and you understand what he did before and what he was accused of doing on November 22nd, You can take these actions, these daily, everyday actions, by a man who did not know what was going to happen the following month, and you can make some qualitative judgments about whether these were the actions of a person who was capable of conspiracy or a person who was even involved in conspiracy. And, of course, I think the answer is no, but all you have to do is to look at these daily activities by Oswald understand what was happening in the background, and get inside his mind, which is not as difficult a thing to do as you might expect. What we are talking about here is not psychohistory. I agree that we should not psychoanalyze people in the past, even if we were psychiatrists, because psychiatrists believe that they have to talk to live people in order to really understand them. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about real live actions by an individual who was a suspect in the most important murder case in the 20th century. And so the question is, are these the actions of an innocent man? Are these the actions of someone who could possibly be involved in a conspiracy And are these the actions of somebody who was at some point planning to shoot JFK? We know he had to be if he did shoot JFK, and all the evidence suggests that he did. So the question then becomes, well, when did he decide that he would try to shoot the president of the United States? Oswald could not drive a car. He was severely limited in his capability to position himself to fire a shot at President John F. Kennedy. Oswald also was not a foolish person. His IQ was quite high. He was extremely knowledgeable about planning. In fact, he really loved to plan elaborate plots. And we know this from the Walker shooting in which he was involved the previous April. And so we would expect Oswald at some point to have planned out the assassination of JFK. Now, it might be that he only had a couple of days to do that planning. It might be that he had a couple of weeks. It might even be possible that he was planning to do so as early as his return from Mexico City the first week in October, because it was known, the newspapers were talking about it, it was known that the president would make a visit to Dallas around November 22nd. So that much was known. But of course, when Oswald returned from Mexico City the first week in August, 
He had no job. He had to look for a job, and he was unable to get one on his own. He did have an interview for a position, but when a former employer reached out to the prospective employer and warned him not to hire Oswald, Oswald was not able to get that job. The reason that Oswald got the job at the Texas School Book Depository in mid-October was because of the kindness of Ruth Payne. Ruth Payne was a Quaker who was extremely interested in the plight of Oswald's wife, Marina. Marina, of course, could speak little English. She could speak very good Russian. And Ruth just happened to want to learn the Russian language. Ruth also had a kind, soft spot in her heart for Marina because she knew that Oswald was pushing Marina to go back to the Soviet Union, which Marina did not want to do. So Ruth was in a situation where she was separated from her own husband, and she felt that it would work for both Ruth and Marina if Marina should go and live with Ruth until Oswald could get his feet back on the ground. Ruth Payne did not know two very important things at the beginning of October. First of all, Ruth Payne did not know that Oswald had been to Mexico City seeking a visa to Cuba. Marina knew that, but Oswald had gotten Marina to promise him not to tell Ruth. Well, the other thing that Ruth Payne didn't know is that Oswald had a rifle which was disassembled and being stored in Ruth Payne's garage ever since they left New Orleans. So this was, unfortunately, a couple of the reasons why the assassination could happen. Ruth Payne would never have allowed a rifle to be stored in her own home when she had two small children. Ruth only knew that Marina was pregnant and about to have a child of her own. So Ruth thought that by having Marina live with her, she could help forestall her being sent back to the Soviet Union where Marina did not want to go. She could continue to learn Russian lessons, which was very important to Ruth, and she could help Marina with the first few weeks of her new child who was supposed to be born uh, about the third week in October and indeed was born approximately that time. So that's what Ruth knew and Ruth did not know about the rifle and that was going to have fateful consequences. So as I said, Ruth was important to Oswald getting a job what happened was that Ruth would go to a neighbor's house from time to time to have coffee. And this neighbor happened to be a sister of one of the men who worked at the Texas School Book Depository. And she and Marina would go and have coffee with the sister of Buell Frazier, who lived just a couple of houses down from Ruth Payne, that is, the sister did. And they were having coffee, and Ruth, as the good-hearted person she was, expressed sympathy for Oswald. She said, he's having such a hard time finding a job. 
I wish we could help him, or I wish that something could be done so that he would get a job. And so Lily May Randall, who was the sister of Buell Frazier and who lived in this house near Ruth Payne's, she pointed out that Buell Frazier had just gotten a job there, and there might be work for someone else, like Oswald, if Ruth or Oswald would simply call the supervisor at the Texas School Book Depository, who was Roy Truly. So, kind-hearted person as she was, Ruth Payne did call Roy Truly and asked Mr. Truly if he had a job for someone who was very worthy for it, a former Marine who had two children and was having a very difficult time finding a job. Well, Roy Truly said that he might have some temporary job for a prospective employee, provided he passed the interview test. Actually, Truly had a job that was supposed to last for about four to six weeks, and he didn't know whether the job would be best suited in a suburban location of the Book depository or at the downtown location. But Oswald came in for an interview, and evidently Oswald put in a pretty good impression. Oswald was polite, he was well dressed, he was always neatly dressed, and he said, Yes, sir, and no, sir. And that impressed Roy truly a great deal because, as he told the FBI, that was something that you didn't hear very often from young people these days. Roy Truly did not check out Oswald's references, and so Truly said, all right, you can have this job, but it may only last six weeks. We'll see. And in a snap decision, Truly decided to place Oswald in the downtown location, which of course turned out to be on the route that the presidential motorcade was to take. So that was another fateful decision. And a lot of conspiracists look at some of these coincidences and they say, well, this is too neat. This is too pat. There can't be coincidences like this. Nothing is a coincidence. It always has to have meaning. And this decision must have been part of the conspiracy. But real life is not like fiction. In fiction, you have to keep the curiosities and coincidences down to a minimum because otherwise people won't believe it. But it turns out in real life, there are a lot more coincidences than people would accept in fiction. And this is a very good example of it. So Oswald got the job and he proceeded to ride with Buell Frazier at the end of each weekend to this Texas School Book Depository building. He would spend the weekends in Irving at Ruth Payne's house, visiting with Marina and waiting for the baby to come. Each afternoon during the week, Oswald would take a bus across the river to Oak Cliff, which was very close to downtown Dallas, much closer than was the suburb of Irving. And so Oswald would easily take the bus to Oak Cliff and stay at a boarding house there. And he stayed at a boarding house in the first half of October with Mary Bledsoe, who was the landlady. Well, 
Bledsoe did not like Oswald. At first, she thought he was neat and polite, just like Truly did. He always made a good first impression. And she did give him a room at the boarding house. But she didn't like the fact that he would take food from the refrigerator into his room. And she did not like the fact that he would speak Russian on the phone. It turns out that Oswald called Marina twice a day during the weeks in which he stayed at the boarding houses. And when he spoke to Marina, he always spoke in Russian because that was the language Marina knew best. And of course, Oswald did not want other people to know what he was saying, so he spoke in Russian. He would always call Marina, and usually these conversations were civil. But Mary Bledsoe, the landlady at the first boarding house that Oswald stayed at in Oak Cliff, did not like the fact that he would speak Russian, and she felt that he was around too much. Mary Bledsoe liked to have the house to herself during the day. She expected the men who were rooming at her house to be gone all day at work, and Oswald was looking for work. This was before he got the job at the Texas School Book Depository. So, at any rate, after about a week, Bledsoe told Oswald that he was no longer welcome at her boarding house and he would have to leave immediately. Oswald took it very calmly. He typically took such events calmly and set about looking for another location. But when he found one nearby in Oak Cliff, he found one on Beckley Street, which was, again, very, very near to downtown Dallas. But he registered as O.H. Lee, which was a combination of his actual initials. He did give the telephone number to his boarding house to Marina in case there was an emergency, in case she wanted desperately to talk to him or needed to talk to him. He gave that number to Marina. Now, this was a little bit odd for Oswald, not that he would use a pseudonym. He always liked to be secretive in that manner. But he was taking a chance by giving Marina the phone number. But it was logical that he would do that, because after all, she was nine months pregnant, and it might be important that she get in touch with him if she had to go to the hospital. Also, he and Marina had the kind of relationship where Oswald swore her to secrecy and found that Marina, more often than not, could be trusted to conceal things from Ruth Payne. For example, he made Marina promise not to tell Ruth that Oswald was trying to go to Cuba at the end of September. So Oswald invented an elaborate excuse saying that he was going to look for a job in Houston, Texas, and that therefore that's why he couldn't come back with Marina and Ruth at the end of September. And the point is that Marina went along with that lie, and she lied to Ruth Payne. And so Oswald knew that he could trust Marina to a certain degree. And I think that that was something that he was 
looking to for reassurance when he started feeling that the FBI was beginning to get hot on his trail. Now, Oswald's fear of the FBI needs to be traced because there are two things that we need to look at when we look at the period between his hiring by Roy Truly at the Texas School Book Depository and when he actually shot JFK. One of the things we need to look at was Oswald's fear that the FBI was once again on his trail and the FBI was going to possibly arrest him. So this would be an obsession of Oswald's, and it would obviously take up a lot of his attention and crowd out any time to think about JFK's visit. Oswald had good reason for being afraid of the FBI, but he also had good reason not to spend a lot of time thinking about JFK's upcoming visit. Now, if we take the second of those two things first, we see that Oswald did not have much reason to hope that he would be in a position to shoot JFK. After all, he had a pistol and he had a rifle, and a rifle would be necessary to fire a shot from any distance, and there was no way for him, who lacked a car, to easily get around downtown Dallas and position himself somewhere where he would not be seen. And besides, Oswald had no idea, nor did anyone else, including JFK and the White House, that there would be a motorcade through Dallas at all when Kennedy came to Dallas. So I don't think Oswald thought that the presidential visit in November would be a great opportunity for him. Chances are Kennedy would come and go with no chance for Oswald to have any possible shot at JFK. So that's very important to keep in mind. But there was an obsession on Oswald's part, and that was the FBI. Why did Oswald have to fear the FBI? Well, you remember that he went to New Orleans to get away from the FBI and Dallas in the wake of the Walker shooting. Well, Oswald had no reason to think that the Walker investigation had been dropped, and he knew that the FBI last had a bead on Oswald at his rooming houses in Dallas or Fort Worth. So that alone would have caused Oswald some concern, not much, but some concern. But the fact that he had been at the Soviet embassy in Mexico City the very same month that he was thinking about the FBI, October 1963, meant that Oswald must have been concerned about the FBI, just for that reason alone. Oswald had every reason to think that for example, the CIA would be monitoring the two embassies, which in fact they were. And he had every reason to think that the CIA would inform the FBI that Oswald had tried to engage in this very serious political activity of doing something that was illegal for an American citizen to do, namely go to Cuba. And whenever he thought he was guilty of a crime, he was that much more fearful of the FBI. So he had every expectation 
that the CIA would tell the FBI that Oswald had gone back to Dallas after being in Mexico City, intending to go to Castro's Cuba. So for that reason, also, Oswald was looking over his shoulder at the FBI. So as the month of October came to an end, Oswald was thinking about the FBI and probably not thinking about the upcoming visit by the President of the United States. Now, on October 24th or October 25th, Oswald attended a presentation in downtown Dallas at which Edwin Walker proclaimed his opposition to the United Nations. And the very next day, the American representative to the United Nations, Adley Stevenson, appeared in the same auditorium giving a speech on UN Day. The day before when Walker spoke was proclaimed in Dallas as U.S. Day. And so Walker condemned the United Nations and Stevenson and urged people to try to disrupt Stevenson's speech. Oswald actually attended the Walker presentation the day before Stevenson's presentation was disrupted by a Walker-inspired mob, and the latter got national headlines, and Dallas was disgraced. So it is possible that Oswald was thinking about how to get back at Walker, not just because of his speech that October, but because he had failed to kill Walker in April, and he was certainly not done with the idea of being a political assassin, something he had thought about while he was in New Orleans, as we know. So that was on his mind on November the 1st, when James Hostie, who had the obligation to trail Oswald on behalf of the FBI, James Hostie, an FBI agent himself, visited Ruth Payne's house. He had gotten Ruth Payne's address from the Texas School Book Depository. So Hostie knew that Oswald was working at the Texas School Book Depository. He got the address of Oswald, which was in Roy Truly's address book, Ruth Payne's house. And so when Hostie showed up at Ruth Payne's house, Marina was there, so was Ruth, But Oswald was not there because it was during the week, and Oswald was working at the Texas School Book Depository Building. Hostie did not want to bother people he was interviewing at their place of business because he knew that that could jeopardize their jobs, and the FBI was not interested in going that far to hurt people that they wanted to interview. So he was at Irving. Well, Ruth said that Oswald worked downtown, but that he didn't live in the Irving home. Marina did, but Oswald lived in a a boarding house. And Ruth proceeded to say, which was totally true, that she had no idea what the address was. And Marina came out of the room where she was taking a nap and was instantly very, very afraid to talk to Hostie. She looked at the FBI as being something like the KGB, and she thought a visit from the FBI 
was the possible beginning of being sent to some kind of gulag in the United States. So Husty had to calm her down, and Marina didn't know Oswald's address either, and she made that clear, and Husty said that he would come back later when Oswald might be around. And he was told that Oswald did come around on the weekends, but that he didn't come every weekend. So that was it for a while for Hostie. But to Oswald, this was the worst possible news. When he came home, he was in a good mood until he heard about the Hostie visit. He was angry at Marina for talking to him. He was probably angry at Ruth, but he knew that he couldn't show his anger to Ruth. And so he told Marina not to speak to Hostie in the future. And if Hostie did come back, make sure that she got the number of his license plate. That was Oswald's directive. So every day in which he was at the Texas School Book Depository, and remember he called Marina twice every day, once during lunchtime and once at the end of the shift, Oswald would ask Marina, has he come back? And of course, for a few days, the answer was no but Oswald was still worried. And then on the weekend of November the 8th, Oswald returned to Irving to visit Marina, and she told him at that time that Hostie had come back. Hostie had made another appearance, but once again, Oswald wasn't there. This time, Oswald was really furious, which may be a cover for his fear, And we can only imagine what Oswald must have been thinking. He must have been thinking that, well, they know about Mexico City. Maybe they've tied me somehow to Walker. Maybe they even have tied me somehow to being a possible suspect in the April 10th attack. So Oswald must have been terrified at that point. But we can only deduce that from the degree of anger he directed at Marina for even talking to Hostie. But Marina had actually managed to slip out of the house and take down Hostie's license plate number while Hostie was in the house talking to Ruth. Okay, so Oswald was in a bad mood the rest of that weekend. Now, we know that either on November the 9th or November the 10th, Oswald made a visit on one of his breaks, probably lunchtime, near the Texas School Book Depository at the headquarters of the FBI in downtown Dallas. This time it was Hostie who was not there. And so Oswald told Hostie's secretary that he would leave a note for Hostie, and he proceeded to write out a brief note, and he handed it to the secretary and told her to give it to Hostie when he came back. And then Oswald left and presumably returned to work. When Hostie returned, the secretary told him some nut had come by and left this for you. The secretary had read the note. And of course, within a few minutes, so had Hostie. Now this is important because... When Hostie heard the news that the president had been murdered by a man who was 
someone he was supposed to be following, Lee Harvey Oswald. Hosty deduced at that point that the note, which was unsigned, must have been from Oswald. Hosty told his superior, Gordon Shankland, about the note. In fact, he may have let slip a point about the note to someone in the Dallas Police Department that we knew that Oswald might be capable of killing the President of the United States, but we didn't think that he actually would. Now, that is what one Dallas police officer said that Hosty told him in the immediate shock of hearing about the assassination on November 22nd. Hosty denied, and always denied, that he said any such thing. But when Shanklin told Hosty to destroy the note, the reason Shanklin said that was because it was just a few minutes after Oswald had been shot and killed by Jack Ruby on November the 24th. Shanklin said, well, now we know that there will be no trial. Destroy that note. And that is precisely what Hostie did. He flushed it down the toilet. This was not known for another 12 years. It was not known to the Warren Commission, and it didn't come out until 1975, when, of course, it became big news. Why did Shanklin tell Hostie to do this? Well, it's pretty obvious. Shanklin was fearful, as was Hostie, that they would be canned by J. Edgar Hoover, or at least severely disciplined, for not tracing Oswald before the assassination. And of course, the fact that they had a note from Oswald, a visit from Oswald, at the FBI headquarters in Dallas just a few days before the assassination looked really bad for Hostie and Shanklin. So it was to cover their tracks and to protect their jobs against J. Edgar Hoover's rage that Shanklin told Hostie to destroy the note. This was extremely important evidence. And because they destroyed the note, we will always have some mystery about what Oswald said in the note. Well, as I said, the secretary had read it, and so had Hostie. And in the 1970s, when the House Select Committee on Assassinations proceeded to investigate the assassination, they interviewed the secretary and Hostie, who, of course, by that time admitted to the note. Hostie gave a rather anodyne description of what Oswald had written. He said that the only thing Oswald said was, stop bothering or harassing my wife. If you have anything to ask, speak to me, not my wife. Well, that, of course, is a rather bland directive that is in Hostie's interest for people to believe, Oswald said, because it suggests that Oswald wasn't saying very much. But the secretary reported that what Oswald actually wrote was a violent threat 
to the FBI, and specifically she said that Oswald had threatened to blow up the FBI headquarters in Dallas if he wasn't left alone. And it appears that of the two witnesses, the one that sounds most credible is the secretary, not Hostie, because Oswald did not need to leave a note to say what Hostie said he wrote. And it's a rather undramatic way for Oswald to leave a comment. So it is also probable that within a very few minutes, perhaps, or hours of leaving this note, Oswald probably regretted what he had done because he had given the FBI another reason for arresting him. And so we have to conclude, it seems to me, that Oswald had no plans to assassinate JFK as late as November 10th, just 12 days before the assassination. Because if he had had such a plan, the last thing he would do was to leave a threatening note to the FBI and possibly get arrested before he could put his plan into effect. So it's pretty clear that this note is a very important part of the mix of events that allows us to infer what Oswald's plans were on virtually a day-by-day basis. Now, some of this is a comparison of my theories with those of Bert Griffin, who has just written a book called JFK, Oswald, and Ruby, Politics, Prejudice, Truth. And I think Bert has some fascinating ideas of what Oswald was up to. Many of them I agree with, some I disagree with, but it helps me to compare my ideas to Bert's to see if we can see some kind of synchronicity or points where his theory branches off from mine. Bert agrees that the leaving of the note with Hostie is hard evidence that Oswald was not planning to shoot JFK as early as November the 10th. That's just 12 days before the assassination. Well, what do we know after that? Well, we know that on the weekend of the 15th, which was when Oswald was scheduled to go back to Irving, Marina had talked to Ruth, and Ruth had told Marina that it might be best if Oswald did not come that weekend because Ruth's daughter was going to have a birthday party. And Oswald had just been to the Payne home the weekend before, and it was a long weekend because it was Veterans Day. He stayed until that Monday. So Oswald took that in stride. He thought it was a good idea, too. And he told Marina that he would just read and watch television the weekend of November 15th, which was, of course, seven days before the assassination. Now, it seems pretty clear that on Saturday, November the 16th, and Bert Griffin and I agree on this, on Saturday, November 16th, the Dallas newspapers reported that there would be a motorcade after all. You remember that on November 15th, the papers said there would be no motorcade, or probably no motorcade. But the next day, Saturday, November 16th, they said, yes, there's going to be a motorcade, and they roughly identified the route of the motorcade and said that it would go through Dallas down Main Street 
and then end at the west side of Dallas from Main Street. So that does not include the right turn on Houston and then the left turn on Elm, which would be proof positive that Oswald would know as early as that Saturday that the president's route would go right past the building in which he worked, right in front of the building, in fact. But we have no evidence that any newspaper article went that far until Thursday, the day before the assassination. And yet, and again here I agree with Bert, it hardly seems to matter because Main Street was visible from the Texas School Book Depository. It was much more distant from the depository building than was Elm, of course, and it would have been a much more difficult shot. But even that is not significant. And once again, I agree with Bert Griffin that Oswald, by Monday, November the 18th, must have known that the itinerary would include Elm Street just because of the news articles that appeared over the weekend. The reason why he had to know that is because there were many employees at the Texas School Book Depository who knew well the route that you had to take from Main Street to get on the Stemmons Freeway under the triple underpass. You had to take a right on Houston and then a left on Elm. There was no other way to get to Stemmons. And these employees, some of them at least, were very interested in watching the motorcade pass by. So there must have been a great deal of talk. And we also know that Roy truly announced that the employees would be allowed to take a break to watch the motorcade pass at some point during that week. So it's very likely, almost certainly, that Oswald, as early as Saturday, November the 16th, knew that the motorcade would pass down Elm or Maine. If he didn't know Elm by Saturday, he knew Elm by Monday, and that would have only excited him all the more. His interest had to have been piqued as early as Saturday, but on Monday, when he found out even better news, namely that the motorcade would pass down Elm, his excitement level must have gone through the roof. And at this point, Oswald certainly wanted to start planning an assassination attempt against JFK. Now, this was also the day when he had a notable telephone conversation with Marina. And the story of this telephone conversation must take us back to the previous day, Sunday, November the 17th. That afternoon, Marina was talking to her oldest child and said, let's call Papa. Marina had the telephone number to Oswald's rooming house. And so Ruth thought that was a great idea and agreed to call on her phone the phone number that Marina had, and she did so. And when somebody answered the phone at the rooming house, Ruth said, may we speak to Lee Oswald? And the person on the other side of the line said, there's no Lee Oswald who lives here. And of course, Ruth and Marina were thoroughly confused by that, and they hung up the phone and talked about what was going on. They didn't have any idea, and Marina said, well, I'll call him in the morning, or when he calls me in the morning, because Oswald always called Marina twice a day during the week, 
I'll find out what's going on. So on Monday, not only did Oswald know the exact route of the motorcade, but he had a chance to talk to Marina. And these two events were going to collide very, very spectacularly on that Monday. Because when Oswald called Marina, the first thing she said was, why weren't you at your rooming house? And he said, well, I was there. I was watching TV. And Marina said, well, we asked for you. And they said, you don't live there. And after a pause, Oswald said, oh, damn, I have not registered under my real name. I registered under the name of O.H. Lee. Marina was furious. She said, why are these comedies, as she put it, continuing to happen? Why all the drama? Why all the spy games? And Oswald replied that he did not want the FBI to find out where he lived. So he was the one who brought up the FBI. And at this point, he was angry, and they agreed to terminate the call soon thereafter. But that evening, Oswald called Marina back, his second call of the day as usual. And this time, Oswald was even more furious. He told Marina, first of all, he addressed her in the Russian for wench, which was one of the worst things you can say to anyone, and especially to your wife. And he told her that she should destroy the telephone number in Ruth Payne's address book. Marina had explained that the address was in Ruth Payne's notebook. Oswald ordered her to destroy that so Ruth would no longer know his telephone number. Marina refused because Marina said, that's Ruth's personal property, and I have no right to destroy that. Oswald directed her to do so in no uncertain terms, and she said, no, I won't do that. And she hung up on Oswald thereafter. They did not speak again on the telephone at any time the rest of the week. Oswald did not call her at all on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, but he appeared unexpectedly at the Irving home on Thursday afternoon, the very eve of the assassination. But between Monday and Thursday, Oswald did not speak to Marina at all. Now, this is very interesting because the question is, why was Oswald so furious about the fact that Ruth had the telephone number? Why was Oswald so furious that two people now had the telephone number and not just one? The answer is because he had some level of trust in Marina. They had this bond, this secret agreement between one another that one would not rat on the other, specifically, of course. Marina would not disclose Oswald's darkest secret. And Oswald seems to have had almost a, a psychological need to believe that Marina would not betray him. You remember that he actually allowed her to keep the note that he had written on April 10th, basically confessing to an attempt to do something violent on the very night that someone fired a shot at Edwin Walker. That document ought to have been destroyed by Oswald, but Marina said she was going to keep it as security 
to prevent him from ever firing a shot again. And he let her keep that note. He never demanded it back. And so he seems to have had a level of trust in Marina that he had in nobody else. But now, Ruth had the note. And Ruth was somebody who was very cooperative with the FBI. She told the FBI everything that she knew. And for that reason, Oswald was very careful to keep Ruth in the dark about his trip to Mexico and about his and about his rifle, of course, most importantly. So Oswald's reaction only makes sense if he was planning to assassinate JFK, and he knew that the FBI might be on his trail, and he wanted to keep the Beckley rooming house off of the FBI's radar screen. That was now going to be more in doubt, because Ruth could provide the number, and the number would be easily traceable to the Beckley rooming house. So that rattled Oswald, but he proceeded with his plan. So just when he was excruciatingly closer to November 22nd, on November 19th, he finds out that his pseudonym and his address are eternally known, not just to Marina, but also to Ruth. Then, too, the existence of the rifle at Ruth's was a secret of Lee's and Marina's as well. What if Ruth got wind of that? What if the FBI returned to Irving and asked ahead of the president's visit if Oswald owned a rifle? We know that Ruth would answer no because that's the answer she gave after the assassination on November 22nd in Marina's presence. But on that occasion, Marina protected Ruth by saying, yes, he has a rifle and it's in the garage and she took the police into the garage and pointed at the blanket that she thought still contained the rifle. Of course, the blanket was empty. One can easily imagine this same scenario taking place on a Tuesday, or a Wednesday, or a Thursday. If the FBI went to Irving, found out about Oswald's pseudonym, they might have asked if he had a weapon. In that case, it's likely that Marina would tell the truth since there had been a breakdown in the relationship on Monday, or at least it's possible. Knowing Lee's propensity to try to kill, Marina might have made the connection between the presidential visit and might have told the truth in the event of an FBI visit before November 22nd. Improbable events had occurred to make the assassination more likely. The rules of chance, or the lack of rules surrounding chance, could work just as possibly as random events against an assassination as the random events they turned out to be in favor of an assassination. This would have been a discovery by the FBI just in time, a discovery of Oswald's rifle a day or two or three before Oswald could get it from a visit to Irving. Oswald also had to worry, and worry hard, about the possibility that the empty blanket would be discovered on Friday morning by Marina. She surely would have spoken out if she had discovered no rifle there. She knew about the presidential visit. She was watching television about it all morning long. And over that, Oswald had no control whatsoever. As he went on his way with Buell Frazier that morning, 
that Friday morning, November 22nd, he must have thought that it was possible that Marina might discover the absence of the rifle, especially if she made the connection between a political leader like Kennedy and a political leader like Walker and the fact that Oswald had taken a shot at the first and now had a chance to take a shot at the second. So from 8 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Oswald probably worried about that, although, as it turned out, he had nothing to worry about in reality. On Thursday morning, November 21st, Oswald asked Buell Frazier if he could give him a ride to Irving that Thursday afternoon, the eve of what we now know was the assassination. Frazier was surprised because Oswald had never gone back to Irving with Frazier during the week, never. And he usually went with Fraser on the weekends and then came back to the depository on Monday morning. So Fraser asked why he wanted to go, and Oswald said he wanted to get curtain rods for his rooming house. So that was good enough for Fraser, and so they went out to Irving that afternoon. Oswald tried to make peace with Marina, and there is some speculation that she played hard to get and refused his advances three times, and if she had not done that, perhaps Oswald would not have assassinated JFK the next day. That argument, however, is highly speculative, and I don't place a lot of credence in it, because Oswald had gone to great lengths to put his plan into action, and he had no trouble lying to Marina or treating her as some kind of ancillary to his larger dreams. So, at any rate, Oswald went into Ruth Payne's garage when no one was paying attention, and he wrapped the rifle in a paper bag that he had created back at the Texas School Book Depository on Wednesday or Thursday. In the morning, he told Marina not to get up. He made his own breakfast, and he took his paper bag over to Buell Fraser's sister's house, something that was also unusual. Not only that, but Oswald looked into the window, surprising Lily Mae Randall. He had never done that either. Fraser left the house, noticed the package in the back seat, and asked Oswald what was the package for. And Oswald said, oh, don't you remember? They're curtain rods. When they arrived at the Texas School Book Depository, Oswald did not walk alongside Fraser to the building, as they usually had done, chit-chatting. Instead, Oswald went ahead while Fraser was stopping the car and turning it off. Oswald was some 30 feet or more ahead of Fraser the whole way. Obviously, Oswald was carrying the package, and he may have been carrying the package in such a way that its length could not be determined precisely by Fraser. The Warren Commission asked Fraser if the bag was more than 24 inches long, which it would have had to be to have held the unassembled rifle. Frazier said that it was not larger than 24 inches, and Lily May Randall backed him up. So this was one line of argument that was difficult for the Warren Commission because it suggested that the package that Oswald carried wasn't long enough to contain the disassembled rifle. But one has to remember that Fraser was not taking a good look at the package, nor was Lily Mae Randall, 
and Oswald, again, may have been carrying it in such a way in front of him as he walked to the Texas School Book Depository Building, at least 30 feet ahead of Frazier, and disappeared into the building. Frazier never saw Oswald again that morning, nor did Oswald fill any orders that morning. He carried his clipboard around with him, but it was later found squeezed between some boxes with absolutely no orders within it. He didn't fill any orders either. The paper bag was found in the southeast corner of the sixth floor window within the area of the sniper's perch where three shells were found, shells suggesting that three shots had been fired from the window. Bert Griffin has tracked many of these events, and I think he is spot on on many of the conclusions that he draws, which parallel the conclusions that I've been talking about in this episode. But Bert believes that Oswald wanted to tie the assassination to Edwin Walker. Bert believes that Oswald wanted to escape and not be identified as the assassin of John F. Kennedy. And rather, he wanted people to blame Edwin Walker and his movement for the assassination. According to Burt, Oswald, of course, knew all about Walker's speeches, his connection to the Stevenson disaster at the end of October. He knew that the right wing was suspected of plotting some kind of demonstration to disrupt JFK's visit to Dallas. And according to Burt Griffin, Oswald believed that if he could shoot John F. Kennedy from a location that could not be identified by people on the ground, and then escape the Texas School Book Depository building and remain free, that Oswald would be not blamed himself, but rather Walker would be seen as the leading suspect. Part of this theory is because Oswald had an ID on his person when he was arrested, an ID in the name of Alec Heidel with Oswald's picture. He had a second ID with the same picture for Lee Harvey Oswald. But according to Burke Griffin's theory, Oswald wanted to make it to Mexico, and he had just enough money to do so, and slip across Mexico with his Heidel ID so that the FBI would think that someone named Alec Heidel had committed the assassination. After all, it was Alec Heidel who had bought the rifle discovered on the sixth floor of the book depository building. And so what Oswald was trying to do was to get the police and the public to think that Alec Heidel had killed the president and that Alec Heidel had been someone involved with the Walker organization so that Walker would get the blame for the assassination, the right wing. Kennedy was just a means to an end to pin the crime of the century on Edwin Walker and to complete the job of destroying Walker that Oswald had attempted back on April the 10th. So some of these thoughts and speculations are dependent on other evidence, clearly. We can't prove or disprove these various theories. Obviously, when Oswald was arrested, he said he was a patsy. And the most important piece of evidence that backs up Bert Griffin's theory is the fact that Oswald never 
took the blame for the assassination. He always maintained his innocence to the last. Of course, Oswald was only in custody for two days before he was murdered, and we can't know if Oswald might have confessed sometime thereafter, especially through a very long trial in which he could have made the performance of the century and taken the blame for the assassination, which he would have seen as taking the credit for the crime of the century. Oswald, according to Bert Griffin, and I agree, wanted to be a change agent in the world. And so Oswald would have been the greatest of change agents if he had taken responsibility for the assassination. That's what I think he would have done. But there's no denying that he took no responsibility for it under the hours of interrogation that he had to go through during the 48-hour period between the shooting of the president and the murder of Oswald. So in the end, what we're left with is two differing speculations about what Oswald would have done in custody and what he was trying to do in the weeks before the assassination. In my view, much of what Oswald was thinking and doing was designed to prevent himself from being captured by the FBI. Of course, if he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory, he only had to maintain that effort until the assassination of JFK. Then he probably wouldn't have to worry about the FBI anymore, because if he only wanted to be a huge change agent and was willing to give his life for it, which he was willing to do on April the 10th and November the 22nd for sure, Oswald might not have worried about the FBI after November 22nd, even if he remained on the loose. So it's hard to refute Burt Griffin's theory about Edwin Walker. It's hard to refute the theory that Oswald was trying to be free as long as possible and hope that perhaps Heidel would be linked up to Walker. But when I examine the evidence, it seems to me that someone as smart as Oswald would know that there were some difficulties to his plot, if there was such a plot, to connect the assassination to Edwin Walker. For one thing, there was a post office box that Alec Heidel was permitted to use in Dallas, but so was Lee Oswald, and so was Marina Oswald, and Lee Oswald had set up the post office box. So right there, Alec Heidel was more connected to Lee Oswald than to Edwin Walker. In fact, there was no connection between Alec Heidel and Edwin Walker. The only connection was the fact that everything in the news in the weeks pre preceding November 22nd had to do with the right wing or the fear of the disruption of the presidential visit by the right wing and by the forces of Edwin Walker. So that's one problem that Oswald had. He was linked to Heidel. Walker was not. Secondly, when he was arrested, Oswald had an ID with Heidel's name on it and his picture on it. This was so incriminating that for once, Oswald did not answer the police's question about that ID. He said, you figure it out, because he had no answer. It was incriminating evidence, which was unanswerable evidence. 
of a connection between Oswald and the man who had purchased the murder weapon in the JFK assassination, Alec Heidel. So Oswald had to know by that time that any attempt to link the assassination to Edwin Walker was completely impossible. For one thing, Oswald had also killed a police officer, which suggested that he was not necessarily in league with a political movement, but he was a cop killer as well as a presidential assassin. So it is true, of course, that Oswald could not have contemplated the possibility that he would be arrested with the ID of Alec Heidel. He had to keep it on his person, even if he might be arrested, because if he wasn't arrested, the ID was his ticket across Mexico in a way as not to incriminate Lee Harvey Oswald. So if he was captured, as he was, he would have had to have that ID on them. That might be an argument in favor of the Burt Griffin theory. But here's the problem. Once Oswald was arrested, he knew that the Alec Heidel connection to Walker, flimsy as it was, would no longer hold up. And yet, he continued to call himself a patsy. He continued to deny that he had anything to do with the JFK assassination. By the time he was making those denials, he knew that his murder weapon was discovered. He knew that the Alec Heidel connection had been made. He also knew that there was a photograph that Marina had taken of him holding the murder rifle, the rifle that killed Kennedy, and the pistol that killed J.D. Tippett. He also knew that Marina would certainly admit taking the picture and that that argument was specious. Nevertheless, he claimed that the picture was doctored and faked. So Oswald was clearly playing his own game by this time, and it may have been a game of timing rather than a game of deciding what ultimately to do. Oswald knew that his goose was cooked. He knew that there was overwhelming evidence against him. He knew that the evidence tied him to the assassination and did not tie Edwin Walker to the assassination. But he continued to deny responsibility, probably because he wanted to buy some time to decide how he wanted the trial to play out. By denying involvement in the assassination during the interrogation period, he could make the trial much more dramatic than it would have been if he had confessed at the outset. That may have been his real game following his arrest. So Bert Griffin may be both right and wrong, right in the fact that perhaps Oswald thought that his best chance for escape was for people to suspect the right wing and to blame it on Walker, and he would use every method at his disposal to contribute to that myth, but that once he was arrested with the Heidel ID, that part of the plan had to come to an end. But Oswald, ever the planner, probably had a plan B, and the plan B involved denying involvement in the assassination for as long as possible, so that when he did admit involvement, it would be in as dramatic a form and in as dramatic a setting as possible, a trial in which Oswald would be orchestrating the defense response. You have to remember there was a case in the Marines where he was 
put on trial for insubordination, and he defended himself. He acted as his own defense attorney. He would not have done that in a trial of the assassination of John Kennedy, but he would have told his lawyer how to proceed, and he would have been manipulating from behind the scenes. Of that, you can be sure. We will continually speculate about Oswald's motives, his plans, his procedures, his plots. We may never know precisely the truth, but what we must do is line up our theories with his behavior. And when we do, some of the theories in this podcast episode will almost certainly be further validated. A few final points. There were no curtain rods found in the Texas School Book Depository after the assassination. Oswald's rooming house already had curtain rods. Oswald never gave an explanation for how the rifle that was found in the Texas School Book Depository was traced back to a money order purchasing it signed by Alec Heidel, the same name as the fake ID found in Oswald's wallet when he was arrested. Nor did he have any explanation for why he and he alone left the Texas School Book Depository to go home within three minutes of the assassination. No other worker at the depository did that. He was the only one not found when a count was taken of the number of employees still on the scene. All were there except Oswald. There are many other incriminating incidents in the next hour and a half of Oswald's life. Too many to detail here. For now, we will close this episode, the final week of Oswald's life before the assassination. This is Rick Ryman. Thanks for listening.